Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. In our next conversation with Dr. William Davis, we're going to talk about uh, his book, Visions in a Seer Stone. We're also going to talk about reevaluating some of the timelines uh, for translation of the Book of Mormon. Did it happen as quickly as some people say? We'll also talk about laying down heads and Joseph's training as a Methodist exhorter. Um, we'll talk about uh, that Joseph was not illiterate, as some say, and William will address some of the criticisms uh, from some apologists in the church. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Um, so let's jump back because I know um, kind of the thesis of your book is this was there's evidence within the Book of Mormon itself that this was an oral transmission and not a written trans- translation. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. And I know that there are many defenders of the church that um, would be threatened by that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, you know, because there, there are all these little tests. Well, Joseph only had a third grade education and he didn't read. And how, would, how could he have synthesized all of these thousands of books? And we don't, and, and so... Um, so I'd like you to, to kind of talk a little bit about that. I know part of that is, is laying down heads, if you can explain what that means. And, and also, do you have evidence that Joseph Smith was a voracious reader? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, but that's a lot of topics. Which one should I, I know, start on first? I know, that's a big question. So I'll let you take wherever you want to go with that. Okay. If we want to look at... Because, um, you know, we have Joseph's education, we have the you know, laying down heads, we have the oral presentation of the text. What, what I'll just kind of go, what, we'll just kind of go back. What is this book about? Okay. And, and what this book about, it's, I'm not dealing so much with the content of the Book of Mormon, the stories, and explaining how Joseph Smith articulated the stories. That's a different project altogether. But what this is, is this is talking about the mechanics behind the construction of the Book of Mormon. I mean, how, how was it kind of arranged and put together. Now, we'll talk about it from the point of view of Joseph Smith being a translator and loose translation. And so what happens with that, and what I'm proposing in the book, is that as part of the translation process, I'll tell you what, the best place might be to start by looking at what is what was Joseph Smith's translation okay. like? What was that involved? Now, and, and we'll, I'm going to go to... Um, Doctrine and Covenants. Okay. Nine. This is um, this is Joseph Smith, and I'm going to go to it in my book here because I have some commentary that was going along with it, where I'm talking about the translation. So, when we're talking about the translation, what it is when we're talking about tight control or loose control. Another way of saying that is Joseph Smith was involved in the articulation of the text or Joseph Smith was not involved. In other words, other than just reading words or receiving words that he told Oliver to write down, okay? But then when you go to DNC 19, so, and here's the story that everybody knows about, all right? So here we are, here's the scenario. We're in Harmony, Pennsylvania, all right? And Oliver Cowdery has finally come. The 116 pages were lost. There's a big blowout about that, Martin Harris, um, 
through whatever he did, they're lost. And then uh, the translation is on halt. You know, nothing's happening. Okay. And then um, we go through this winter of just distress. Uh, Joseph and Emma, their child dies. Um, he's living on the Hales farm on a tiny little corner of it. I mean, this is about as low as you can get. He's surrounded by relatives. Nobody likes him because, you know, he tried to join and be nice and go to the mess of this class meetings. And, and one of the relatives, get him out of here. <laughs> he's, he's a necromancer. Get him. And so he, this is miserable. And so finally, um, and I think that's when he was just saying, you know, I've got to get this project done. So anyway, spring comes around, Oliver Cowdery shows up. So then they start working on this and it's like, Phew. so they're, they're working away. They're doing the translation. How is he doing the translation? Well, Joseph Smith has got the seer stone and he's using uh, the seer stone and the hat to kind of block out light. And they're going through and they're doing this process. Now in the middle of this process, um, Oliver says, wow, this is really amazing. I'd like to try this. Joseph, can I, can I translate? And, and Joseph, who knows what Joseph thought? He's like, well, sure. Well, why not? You know, if, if I can receive inspiration from God, and then why not you too? Mm -hmm. So then he, so he, so he goes to uh, Oliver and says, right, go for it. So now, presumably, then, Oliver's been watching Joseph with the seer stone uh, doing this work. Presumably, Oliver then would have used the seer stone to make his attempt. Now, some people have tried to argue that Oliver also used a divining rod. Right. And so maybe Oliver decided that he was going to use his divining rod. Um, I don't find that argument compelling because, well, first of all, if you believe in a tight translation where Joseph Smith was reading words off a of seer stone, then you know, there, there's your screen. Divining rod doesn't have a little, unless this tiny little ant-like screen that's going to give you the words. I mean, that's, it, it, it looks like Oliver was just trying to do what Joseph was doing. And so he's like, give me the hat and the stone and I'll try. It didn't work. Well, I think the original versions of DNC 9 mentioned the rod. Yeah, but not as the translation. It, it mentions the rod, but this is where your gift is with the uh -huh. rod. But it, but it doesn't, it doesn't say, um, you know, when you were trying to translate with the rod and it didn't work, this is what happened. You should have used the seer stone. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you should have used the seer stone. So, but, but we'll re read through this closely because this tells us about the translation. And this, you know, a lot of other descriptions of the translation process took place, you know, 50, 60 years after the fact when you start getting these historical references. But then this is something that's happening while they're doing the translation. I mean, this is the closest thing we have to a real-time description of what that translation process was. Okay. Okay. And so here's what, here's what we're saying. And I'm going to interject in here as I'm reading this. So again, we're going, this is uh, Doctrine and Covenants, Section 9. Um, and if people want to follow along in your book, what page are you in your book? In my book, I'm on page 168. Okay. And I know that everybody is going to want to open up the books that they purchased and got for their own well, libraries. Well, by the way, <laughs> I probably haven't told people, but we're going to give away an autographed copy of Visions in a Seer Stone. So there could be people that get a copy from you. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know. Well, we'll, we're, we'll uh, hopefully people will... 
participate. And they'll go rewatch this interview and then be like, okay, I'm on page 160, is that what you said? 168. 168. Okay. And it's under a heading called Dynamics of Revelatory Translation. Now, and if you're following in Doctrine and Covenants, it's Doctrine and Covenants 9, starting on, uh, say, verse 7. Yeah, verse 7. So this is the translation that comes. So Oliver Cowdery, you know, he gets the hat in the stone. He's wanting to say, okay, now I'm going to try it. So he starts, and he starts, and he starts, and nothing's happening. And so finally he gets up and he goes, oh my gosh, what's going on? And Joseph's like, uh, oh, let's ask the Lord and get a revelation. This is what comes. He says, behold, Oliver, behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it the translation. You supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. So in other words, he's saying, you thought I was just going to give you the words. All you do, you, that's not how translation works. You don't come to me and just say, okay, Lord, uh, translate it for me. Let's see what's on the seer stone. He said, you, suppose that I, um, you have supposed that I would give it unto you. That means the, God is not giving you the translation. It's right here. And you took no thought, save it, uh, and, and all you had to do was ask me. In other words, there's no effort on the part of the translator. So it's all passive. So what happened here is Oliver got up to the stone and he's like, okay, Heavenly Father, give me the translation. I don't see. And there's nothing there. That's because he's not participating. He's just sitting back and saying, well, where is it? Where's, where's the screen telling me what to say? And then, um, but he says, but behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. You got to think about it first. Then you must ask me if it be right. So in other words, you're not just thinking about it, but then you have to start thinking about, you know, what's happening here? Um, is it, are the Nephites going to do this? Are the Nephites going to do that? And you're waiting for a confirmation. So that's active thought. That's active engagement. That's trying to imagine. That's trying to get inspiration to get some sort of idea in mind and then say, is this how I say it? Should I say it that way? And then, and if it is right, if what you come up with is correct, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. So when you're thinking and trying to imagine, trying to be open to revelation, and you're participating in this process, once you start to get it correct, your bosom is going to start to burn within you. And then you can say, aha, and then that's when you start giving the translation. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it is not right, you will have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought that will cause you to forget the thing which was wrong. Therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me, this inspiration. You know, so it's this participatory process. And so, um, and he says, now if you had known this, you could have translated, Right? So, so what we're getting here is something, this scripture really militates against the idea of tight control. Because tight control is passive. Tight control is the person just sits back and say, okay, I'm in tune with the spirit, show it to me. Game on, where's my popcorn? I'll just tell you as I eat my popcorn, everything that's coming off here. And the other thing too, the process doesn't seem to, to involve that. Because if the words were coming like that, where you didn't have to worry about it, 
the 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 dictate or the transcription process would have happened so much faster. It would have been so much quicker than the 90-day period framework in which you know they dictated the Book of Mormon. Here's the other thing on the other side of the coin of that, though. When Joseph Smith was dictating the Book of Mormon, he wasn't having these long pauses where he's thinking about whatever, you know, and receiving inspiration, waiting till he gets, and then talking, you know, because otherwise the descriptions the descriptions say that he would start to say a sentence, Oliver would write it down, repeat it back to him, and then. Once it was repeated back, if everything was okay, then he would say the next phrase, Oliver. So, so they're doing this back and forth, phrase by phrase thing. There, there's no one describing how he said a phrase, Oliver repeated, then Joseph Smith went off on five minutes meditation, then came out with another phrase. So, it's, it, it, so if this is what translation is, is this, and this is what is coming in the Revelation, then that means Joseph Smith, if he followed this process, then he wasn't studying it out in his mind and finding confirmation in the moment of dictation. That had to have occurred before the dictation session. Okay. That's DNC. That's the description that we're getting in the revelation from God. Now, if that's the case, then when did he do that? And how long was he doing that for? You know, and that's and that's when and so what I'm what I'm proposing in the book is when you go back and you look at the history of from the moment in 1823 in September when Joseph Smith, you know, told the family, you know, this angel appeared to me with these plates and uh, told me about these plates and said that there's this history of ancient Americans um, and that eventually I'm going to be translating them. That that's the point when we know that Joseph Smith was aware of these ancient people and that their stories. And then when you look at what Moroni said to him, even in you know, the accounts where it's really brief, apparently the angel Moroni gave him this overall arc of the story that there was a righteous nation where they came from, they went wicked and they fell apart and they died. So you, know, you have this kind of general outline about the story. And this is as early as 1823, 1823. Right? And so, so Joseph knew what was in the Book of Mormon in 1823. In 1823, yeah. But let's go into more detail, because I know that when we talk about this issue, um, a lot of times what will come up is Lucy Mack Smith. Um, okay. When she was talking about how Joseph Smith, after he had this vision, all of a sudden he came at night and he was telling us stories about the ancient inhabitants of the Americas, and we were all just sitting and with, you know, bated breath on the edge of our seats listening to, and he said, what a sight this was with the whole family sitting around this young man just listening to him tell stories. And where, um, that's where people tend to go to try to show evidence of what Joseph Smith may or may not have been thinking about um, at that time from 1823. But what often isn't included in that is the Wentworth letter. And so, let's go look at the Wentworth Letter okay. for a minute because I think, and so I'm this not. This is 1843 when he wrote yeah. the Wentworth letter. Yeah. yeah. So the eight, eight, the Wentworth letter, and just so people know, he was a um, he was a Chicago editor, and he wanted to know a little bit about Joseph Smith and the Mormon movement, and uh, and so he wrote to say, hey, can you tell us about this? And so Joseph Smith responded, and in his response, he talked about. The visitation from the angel Moroni, 
And so let's go look at that in a little bit of detail about what he said the angel told him at this 1823 period when he was first learning about it. Um, so, now according to Smith, and I'm going to read some of this, I'll try not to be, I know, I'll try to be more lively when reading because it's boring. Um, so he, he, and this is quoting him, he said that um, there was a book deposit written upon golden plates giving account of the former inhabitants of the continent and the source from which they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it. So that's something else we know. So this book isn't just a history of these people who came and rose up and then died out, but it also has their gospel. As delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. So now he's saying this is what, now if, if what Joseph said is accurate, Right? If he's giving an accurate account of what Moroni told him, then not only did Moroni tell him about the ancient people and their lives, but he also told them that Christ, the Savior, even came to them, and it also talks about their gospel. So there's going to be talking about the religious history, not just... Uh... Oh, you know what? That was, that was uh, with Oliver Cowdery. I'm sorry. Coming to the John Wentworth letter, but this, that's another account. That's with um, oh. Oliver Cowdery. So that's and information. And when was this account with Oliver Cowdery? 1833, I think. Oh, so that was no, 1835. That was a series of letters in the Latter-day Saints Messenger and Advocate. And so what happened is uh, Oliver Cowdery had written a lot um, of de more detailed information about the origins of the church, and he went into this. Joseph Smith at the time was the editor, and so he was previewing everything for publication before it went. So this and Oliver should know because he was a scribe. Yeah, yeah. So this and so this was really close to the event. Joseph Smith also was the editor who was kind of approving what was printed. So Oliver is implying that Joseph knew. Do we know as early as 1823, or does he really specify? But sometime this, before this was the visitation of Moroni. Okay, so, so that could have been 23, 24, 25, 26. Yep, yeah, we could, because okay. there's supposed to be you know visitations after that, and also when Joseph Smith first appeared, and then he started telling stories to the family about the ancient inhabitants. It wasn't a one night one shot deal. It was saying he you know, was continuing to tell us these stories and we would continually. So the idea is Joseph could have been practicing translating with these stories first. Is well, that, that, that could have been part of the translation process. Is, and that's what I'm arguing in the book is that part of this translation process was this preparatory phase of, of thinking about the ancient inhabitants. So it wasn't just 90 days, it was seven years. The, the prep. Yeah, not quite seven years, but yeah, yeah, it was about five and a half years from the time that they started the actual dictation of the final form of the version. It was about four years when they started, uh, when they began the 116 pages, that was about four years from the September 1823, because that was somewhere in late 1827, early 1828. Okay. And then, but then, then the project got stopped, and then they started back up in April of 1829. And so that was then also a little more time to, to think about it. So anyway, when he wrote, and this is a, it was a letter, March 1842 letter to the editor, John Wentworth. Um, these are some of the details that Joseph Smith said Moroni told him in 1823, that first visitation. He says, uh, Joseph says, I was informed by Moroni concerning the aboriginal inhabitants of this country 
and shown who they were, their identity, from whence they came. So he knew that they were coming across from ancient Israel or earlier, you know, with the Jaredites. A brief sketch of their origins. So where they're coming from, historical sketch. That means outline, by the way. That's another word for outline at this time. Their progress, so not just that they got here, but then how they started to develop. Their civilization, so he's describing what's going on, the type of civilization that they have. Their laws, their governments. What kinds of governments do we have? You know, in the Book of Mormon, we have the kings, the monarchies, but then we also have the system of judges. And then the only other government that I think they mention is when everybody totally broke apart and they were in separate tribes, so you would have tribal leaders. And so those are being explained. Um, their righteousness and iniquity. So events of when they were righteous, events when they were not righteous. And the blessings of God being uh, finally withdrawn from them as a people. So this is actually pretty detailed. You know, you're getting some serious information. So when Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith, he was telling him a lot of stuff. He's not just saying, oh, there's a book. It has all the history. Just wait for it. You'll, you'll get to it, you know, years from now. No, he was telling him all kinds of stuff right from the very beginning. And then in addition to that, and what I point out in the book is Joseph Smith has a seer stone, right? And one of the properties of the seer stone is that you're able to look into the seer stone and through, you know, meditation, opening yourself up to the spirit, you're going to be able, just like the interpreters mentioned in the Book of Mormon, you can see the past, the present, and the future. So if Joseph Smith on his own, outside of these conversations with Moroni, was curious and wanted to know more to kind of see what's going on, all he has to do is focus on the seer stone and he can be taken away to see what these events are, even if he doesn't have the plates. Now, he could have done that, whether or not he did or not. Of course, there's no historical uh, reference to him saying, oh, I was really curious to find out about Nephi. And so on my own, before I got the plates, I got the seer stone and looked into it. But all the same, that, that power, that possibility was always there from the very beginning. And so there's a, and then we also hear that every year he was going and talking to Moroni. And Moroni was preparing him, giving him information, preparing him for the restoration. You know, so there is, there's preparatory stuff happening here. And what I'm arguing is that all of that preparatory process involved preparation to do the dictation of the Book of Mormon. And what would that kind of preparation And so that would have been a lot more preparation than just the short days he was actually dictating it. Yeah, and so I think that during that preparation time, that's when the study it out in your mind to see if it's correct. And if it's correct, I'll give you a burning in your bosom. And then what I'm you know, arguing in the book is that one of the things that Joseph did as he was going through that process is then as, as he's studying out and trying to figure out what's happening in these ancient civilizations, that he'll just be taking little notes. And those little notes are little sketch outlines of what the stories were going to be. And that you can see evidence of that in the text of the Book of Mormon itself. In the chapter headings. In the chapter headings. And it's not just the chapter headings. You can also see outlines embedded into the story structures themselves, where you get these succinct outlines of narratives um, that have not yet appeared yet, but then you're getting kind of a story outline in advance.
And then, uh, so when you look at the headings, what these headings are is the really succinct um, outlines with these short phrases. And oftentimes they're not even a full sentence. They're just really succinct words. And all you need, they can be, you know, depending on uh, the notes you look at, is they could be as simple as one or two words being all you need to kind of cue the memory of the person uh, for what they're going to speak on. And that, at, that kind of process is exactly what's going on in the sermon culture of Joseph Smith's day. When you have evangelical preachers and the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, and the New Light Congregationalists, or else the people who descended from the New Light Congregationalists. Well, and my question is, don't people even do that now, today? Like if you're speaking extemporaneously, you might have a little out, tiny outline. Yeah, absolutely. But there is a difference. There is okay. a difference. And that's, that's where I've noticed that there is um, where, where um, there has been. This is something that I think I could have done a better job of explaining. Because there, In your book. Yeah. Because, um, well, let's go to the book. So it's this pro the technique of making these little outlines is called laying down heads. And so each one of these little cues, each one of these mnemonic uh, phrases that you just look at that and you say, oh, you know, that reminds me of a whole bunch of information. Um, each one of those things was called a head. And so when laying down heads was creating the short Kind of outline. like an outline, right? Yeah. Now, and, and if you look at it, we know that this was a lot of the structuring of the Book of Mormon was based on this technique. And how we know it is the Book of Mormon itself mentions it. And so I'm going to go look at that real quick. It's in Jacob. And in, uh, in the opening, so Nephi has been in charge of everything. Um, and then everything gets turned over to Jacob. But Nephi, when he's turning over, he says, okay, here's some things. I'm going to give you the plates, but you know, make sure that when you record the stuff that uh, you're recording things that are really important. And, and he tells him how to do that. So um, uh, Nephi gave me Jacob. And this is the book of Jacob, chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading through um, like verses 1 through 3. So uh, wherefore, uh, going just further down in, Nephi gave me Jacob a commandment concerning the small plates upon which these things are engraven. And he gave me Jacob a commandment that I should write upon these plates a few of the things which I considered to be most precious, that I should not touch, save it were lightly, concerning the history of the people. So, we, so here we, you know, we've got the commandment. Older brother to younger brother. Look, don't waste your time on these small plates with all these stories. Just talk about the doctrine. And he said, you know, because the history is going to be on these other plates, the large plates of Nephi. Which get lost. Yeah. <laughs> well, wait, wait. Yeah, a portion of, well, yeah, some of the large plates, they'll cover Alma, you know, and so some of that, anyway, but the 16 pages, that portion of it was gone. Yeah. Um, and, and so here we get down to uh, verse 4. If there were any preaching, which is sacred, so sermons, or revelation, which was great, so any inspired revelation and prophecy, um, or prophesying, that I should engraven the heads of them upon these plates. What does that mean? We engrave the heads, engrave the main points of the sermons, of the prophecy, of the revelation, and then touch upon them as much as possible. So you engrave in the head, and then touching upon it 
as much as possible is elaboration. They called it amplification at the time. So, so here's the main idea, and then we're going to elaborate it and talk about that idea. So in other words, if there's any of these sermons that you give, you know, write down the main points and then, write, and then fill, flesh it out with, with what those main points were. And so that's what he's telling him. And he's using this language, laying down the heads. That is um, specifically in people who were born and raised in the 19th century would know exactly what that meant. Because that's the kind of language that they use when they're talking about when you hit the main points of um, a speech or the, the main points of any type of history or narrative. Than, than hitting the main heads and then touching upon the heads, or hitting on the heads and elaborating or amplifying the heads, was, was this technique. And it's essentially the form of composition that um, kids were learning in common schools, that you would be taught about in Sunday schools, that you would uh, learn about if you were in self-improvement venues like juvenile debate clubs or even domestic education. Um, this is what you would come across every time you went to a, and listen to a sermon on Sunday, the, the preachers would be laying down the heads and either overtly or concealed heads. I mean, this was all encompassing. You were exposed to this from the moment that you started going to church or started learning how to read or have any kind of instruction. So that would be 19th century, 19th century. lingo in, yeah. the, in the Book of Mormon, basically. Yeah. And, and uh, this type of technique, it predated the 19th century for quite a quite a long while. Um, and that's where some, I think there's been some mistakes where people have said, oh, Davis is saying that this was something that just sprang up in the 19th century. No, 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 no. That's not what my book says. This is something that has a really long history. Um, so anyway, I mean, there's lots of stuff to talk about. So when we're coming back to, is it just following bullet points, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just following bullet points. Um, but, but this is where there is kind of a little bit of confusion. Laying down heads occurs in print culture, and laying down heads occurs in the oral culture. And in print culture, it is kind of a series of bullet points. You know, so when you look at the, uh, the headings, it, it's kind of a sequence of events. You know, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Because I know in... Um and I'm a math guy, I'm not an English guy, but I remember in high school, one of the, my English teacher would say, okay, when you write an essay, tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then summarize what you told them. Yeah. I mean, is that kind of what laying down heads is, basically, as well? That comes directly out of it. Okay. I mean, what, what we're learning today has a history, and that history, so what people kind of learn, whether, you know, someone's extempore high school debate, or somebody who's, you know, even who might have come up with this on their own. I, I competed, oops, sorry. I competed in extemporaneous speaking in high school, and then no one trained me in it, right? But I learned how to do it by, by just saying, um, you know, here's a few formulaic trick ways to, to open it up. But then all I had to do is, gee, you could give me any topic, and I would take and sit with it for five minutes, and I could get up and talk about any of it. And part of it was, I would just say, here are the main points I want to talk about. And then all I had to do is kind of remember that, and then I could just get up and go, and all I had to do is reference that little outline I created in my mind. And that's really similar to what's going on here. But the problem is it's not just that that's going on when it comes to sermons, 
when it comes to prophesying and these revelations. There's something more complicated going on here. And this is what I, um, I wish I could have uh, gone into a little bit more is because uh, seeing how... This is the second edition, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll have to come out with a second edition. And I, I, I put this down in here because I was hoping to get back to it. Um, okay, so what happened is we have here in the scriptures, we have uh, Jacob saying, um, Nephi told me to lay down heads and then to touch upon them as much as possible whenever I'm recording these sermons. So then the next thing in the, what I talked about in the book, and it, it's a little bit later and it kind of goes by so people might miss it, and that's where I made, I think, the mistake of not banging people over the head with this more, is the question of not that he just laid down heads as part of this process of documenting sermons and um, revelations, but how did he lay down heads? It wasn't just bullet points, okay? The way he laid it down was following a very specific pattern of sermonizing called the doctrine and use pattern. And so it wasn't just a list of bullet points, but it's bullet points with specific categories of information or a specific focus on how we talk about this information. Okay, and, and they called it doctrine and use and it had different names, but I'm just gonna talk about this just for a little bit. Okay, here we go. So I'm gonna read a little bit about this and we're gonna talk about a little bit because the doctrine and use pattern is something that is not an age old timeless pattern. It's something that is fairly recent in, in the whole course of history. So when Jacob's sermons follow this uh, doctrine and use pattern, uh, it's something that's very typical in 19th century preaching. And it, it, it deals with um, when you start out the doctrine and use, what would start out with this pattern is usually they begin with a text. And when they say the text, inevitably, 95% of the time, it's a scripture. So what will happen is you start out and you'll say, okay, today's sermon is going to be on this scripture. And then that's followed by a bit of an introduction where they try to contextualize the scripture. It will have just preliminary information that people know to get the scripture in context, like here's this scripture, this is, and here's the story context in which it occurs. It's, you know, one of Paul's letters or it's in the middle of, you know, the Exodus or something. So they get people to know what that is. And then once, once they have that, then they start to break it down and say, here are some of the doctrines that we can pull out of that. And then they had something called the uses or the applications. And what that was is they would say, now that we pulled this doctrine out of it, now here's how it applies to you. Who, who, whoever's listening to this, this is what this means in your life. This is how you apply it in your life. And this is, this is how it's not just applicable. So if we're talking about an ancient scripture, the people in Exodus, it's not just something that applies to them. It's something that applies to us. So it was also a type of interpretation that was based on the, the types and shadows. So if you see something happening um, in the text anciently among the Israelites, well, we can use this as a lesson that was also um, about us today, how we apply that. And then, um, so when uh, he goes through, and, and then I kind of track this in the book. For those who want to read more closely about it, you might want to start at, say, page 94, and then read up at least through 97. But anyway, um, because that's when I go into detail about how this works out, and I'm probably spending too much time talking about this, but the point I'm trying to make, though, 
is that particular style of pattern. And it's not just in Jacob, but you see the same type of sermon pattern appearing again and again and again with all the sermons that stretch across the Book of Mormon. That's a sermon pattern that was developed out of what's called the Sermo Modernus, and that's among the medieval scholastics. So what was happening is in the medieval period, um, the preachers were wanting to get information out to the masses, and because what was happening is a lot of people were preaching in Latin, and the you know common lay people were like, okay, okay. I don't know what that means. What are you saying? Mm -hmm. And and so what they started. And I've been to, to Catholic mass, and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so what would happen is, and part of the scholastic movement, part of the sermon modernus, which means the modern sermon. Of course, it's not modern for us now, but for them, it was modern. It was new. It was exciting. It was different. It was different than anything prior to it. And what they would do then is they'd say, we want to teach these people who don't know much about um, the gospel, but we want them to really understand it more. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a scripture and we're going to break it apart. And they break it apart in different ways. You know, some people would actually break it apart and say, this word means this, and this word means this, and they'd call it dissection. You know, where um, one of the terms. I've seen seminary teachers do that. <laughs> yeah. and, and so they're different approaches, but that's one of what they mm -hmm. would do. And then, and then by pulling it apart, then they're trying to teach people, you know, what this all means to give them a better understanding. And then they'd also, uh, then they'd break it up into, say, you know, three or four main heads. And they wouldn't go any further because they're trying to teach people in a way. You have people who, a, a lot of people were just simply illiterate. So the only way they're going to learn is by listening to a sermon. So what they would do is you don't want to throw too much information at your audience. You want to break it down into a, a short but logical sequence. And then um, so that they'll learn something so that when they go home, they're going to remember this. And a lot of times people would go home and then they'd have discussions. Sometimes people who were literate would write it down. And the way they'd write down a sermon is also by listening for the heads and writing down the heads. Uh, really super common practice. Kids in Sunday schools, they were taught that, um, you know, when you listen to the preacher on Sunday, and by the way, you were required to go to church if you went to Sunday school. And so when Joseph Smith was attending Sunday school, he had to be going to church somewhere at the same time because that was a requirement. Anyway, one of the things that would happen is you'd be listening to a sermon, and, and after the sermon was over, then, you know, a sem uh, Sunday school teacher or a parent might say, okay, what was, what was the sermon about? So later, later on that evening, you know, some, okay, tell us what the sermon is about. We do that now, my kids just say, I don't know. Yeah. I was just say, I don't know. But what was, what was common practice, the kids then, they would listen for the main points. What were the heads? Because sometimes the preacher would say, okay, we're going to this point now, and, and we're going to do this. And so kids then would have to recite back to a parent or recite back to a teacher the main heads of a sermon. And anyway, I'm, I'm kind of going off. To but, prove that they were listening. Yeah. All of this specific type of tradition goes back to this medieval time period with the Sermo Modernus. That's when it originated. And so we're, we're talking about, you know, uh, of 13th century, onward 14th, 15th. I mean, it was in development, and, and it, it wasn't always just for teaching the masses, because sometimes you do have this sermon format that's still all in Latin, because they, they would even use that in the, the early universities and whatnot. But that is the pattern that shows up in the Book of Mormon. And that, there's no way that an ancient Nephite is going to be using that pattern. Why not? Because it didn't exist yet for most of the time. 
And then by the time that, um, yeah, I mean, it just didn't exist yet. It hadn't been developed. It hadn't been developed for several centuries in another part of the country. Now, so how do we how do we, we deal with that? Let me argue with that because yeah. what it, because you know we know so little. Assuming the the Book of Mormon took place in the Americas, and mm -hmm. there's a fun theory about melee, which I think is really fun. But anyway, I'm going to ignore that for now. Yeah. <laughs> Assuming it took place in the Americas, we know so little about the ancient inhabitants. How do we not know? That they just used heads back in 400 BC or whatever. Well, we, well, we do have to have some kind of evidence. We can't just say, well, they might have had it, so they're, well, they're good. But just maybe, I mean, the, the argument, I'm trying to play devil's yeah, advocate no. here. But the, the argument could be, well, maybe, maybe Nephi knew that in 600 BC or whatever. That's just the way yeah. he did it. Or, I guess with the loose translation, Joseph converted whatever was on the plates to... Yeah. these heads that you're talking about. Would that be a better explanation? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where we're going. Because okay. you know, that's one of the things I'm proposing. And then right away, I know some people say, ooh, you know, uh-uh. No. This no. is not what I would you learn know? in Sunday school. Yeah. But so the way to think about that then is to go back to the translation process. Okay. Now, one thing people could argue is say, um, Nephi was given a vision of the future and, and he saw how information was packaged for 19th century audiences who listened to sermons. And so Nephi, when he wrote down on the gold plates, he decided to make his sermons conform to 19th century conventions because he's right. You know, and there's a point when, you know, that's really, that's... The issue here is what God does and what God doesn't. I mean, if we take the position with God, anything is possible. So if God wanted to do it, it could have been done. You know, that's oftentimes a fallback. But the real issue isn't what God could do. The real issue is what did God actually do? Because if we just say God can do anything, then any possibility is equally valid with any other possibility. But God has given us evidence. And he's not saying shut off the mind, don't look at it, don't explore, don't go deep. Because if we do that, then we start to miss out on what's really happening. We might miss out on the chance to understand Joseph Smith's translation process. So if we just say, God can do anything, B.H. Roberts talked about this, by the way, not this specific topic, but, but B.H. Roberts was getting frustrated with people who said, well, God could, you know, if God wanted to give information to these ancient Nephites, to knowledge about the Americas, he could have done it. And B.H. Roberts, what he said, he said, that is, and to quote B.H. Roberts, lazy. That's how he describes people who fall back on those arguments. And, and the reason why he says that is because there's a lot of information that's given that if we pursue it, and if we get out of our own way of feeling threatened with information that challenges our thinking, we might be able to discover some truths that are even deeper. And so this is going back to this theory. I'm on the one hand, you could say, well, if God wanted to, you know, all of these ancient prophets could have you know, looked into the future and saw how we formatted our text and saw how we arranged our sermons and then they conformed everything about their lives to match up for the 19th century audiences. That's a stretch. That, and it's not a stretch even just from an academic looking at it. I mean, from a theological position. That's more of a stretch than if you say, if Joseph Smith were a translator, like he said he was, and he is trying to 
and he's receiving inspiration about these ancient sermons, but he's limited by his own experiences in life, then when that comes filtering into his mind, it's going to filter out through his translating brain into a form and framework that he's familiar with. So you expect to see 19th century elements. You would expect to see 19th century frameworks because he's a 19th century translator. And so the fact that all of these Nephites are using a style, a sermon pattern that didn't exist and wouldn't exist for centuries after they were all dead, you could still say Joseph Smith is a translator. This is evidence of him participating in that translation process. And testimony is intact. You know, we don't have to feel threatened. What it does, though, is it helps us to gain a greater appreciation of what Joseph Smith was doing in the process of translation. And if, if we weren't willing to take that step, then that's information about Joseph Smith, the history of the church, and the history of the Book of Mormon, we would never know because we refuse to consider that possibility. You know, and so that's, that's kind of what I'm doing with this book. And, and, and in the opening of the book, you know, I talk about how we have to be careful when we're talking about these subjects. There are some things we're talking about that are doctrines of the church and beliefs of the church. But there are a lot of things we're talking about that are not doctrines. They're theories. There are explanations that people are coming up with. And sometimes people who see themselves as defending the faith are not actually defending the faith. They're defending their cherished theory. And sometimes that gets in the way of finding out more accurate information about our own past. Because someone has a knee-jerk, angry reaction, and, and then it shuts a door that should not be shut. So when Joseph says he's a translator, you take him at his word and yeah. say, yes, he just translated it in the 19th century language. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Speaking of which, and then uh, we talked about this earlier. Um, I'm going to go to this scripture because I don't think people always recognize it. But when Joseph Smith was, um, when we're trying to figure out what Joseph Smith meant by the word translation, and there's a lot of different ideas, whether it's revelatory translation, receiving inspiration, just trying to articulate things in his own words. He also did mean that he was actively participating in translating. And we know that because he used the word translate in the act of describing what he was doing while translating when he was working with the King James revision of the Bible. Oh, okay. Okay. And so that's in Doctrine and Covenants, if people want to follow along. Doctrine and Covenants 128... Um, ultimately, we're going to verse 18, but or verse 17. Before that, he's going. Th Joseph Smith is going through, and you know, he's answering some questions, and he's referencing some scriptures, and um, and he's talking. First, he's talking about First uh, Corinthians, Paul, where uh, the scripture: "Else what shall they do? They which are baptized for the dead, if the dead night rise not at all." and explaining the scripture, and then he's saying how that's connected to the Malachi scripture. 
where, uh, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of uh, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I can't write. I don't have my reading glasses on. It's a little blurry. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So mm -hmm. he's explaining this. Now, in the process of explaining this, he gives us this wonderful thing. And this is uh, verse 18. Joseph says, I might have rendered a plainer translation to this. So he just gave us Malachi. And then he says, I, I, might have, I might have rendered a plainer translation of this scripture, but it, sufficient, but it is sufficiently plain to suit my purpose as it stands. So what he's saying is, when, when it, I could have given you a different translation of this verse, but it's good enough as it is for me to explain what I need it to say. What Joseph Smith is, so he's used the word translate. I could have rendered a different translation. And he's also saying, I had options. So he's saying, this is one way to translate it. I could have translated it another way that might have been more specific to the purpose, but this one's good enough. So what he's saying is that the translator has options on how something is expressed. It's not just a single option. It's not this one direction endowment of words. We're, otherwise, Joseph said, you know, I don't know why the Lord did it that way, but he gave it to me word for word. But if I were doing it, I would have, you know, he's not saying that. He's not describing translation as a process where everything is given to the translator and they don't do any work on their part. And that's consistent with goes clear back to with the Book of Mormon. Kind of consistent with what you were doing with the Maori translation of the and covenants as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So we'd have some idea, and then you'd say, "Here's about four or five ways to do it. Which one do you think is the best?" Hmm. And then having the native speaker, you know, choose or even further revise. So that's what's going on here. And so what that tells us is that Joseph Smith is involved in that process. And so um, it just uh, the desire to see, you know, this hard rock. Uh, tight translation where the translator is fully passive. Just, um, wow, what an uphill battle. Not only is it a harder apologetic stance to defend, it just really doesn't match what we get from the text and also the historical record. It's, it's, it's not the best option. So anyway, hmm. that's my opinion. Well, very interesting. I was curious if you could talk a little bit about, you mentioned it earlier in the conversation, um, that Joseph spent some time as a Methodist exhorter. Mm -hmm. And um, and in your book, you mentioned that you, they were expected to study certain things. So first question, how long did he spend doing that? And what are the types of things he would have studied? Okay. Methodist exhorter. Now, that's kind of hard because when you get into the Methodist class meetings, I mean, they had some general things in common that they tried to do. There were some rules and regulations on. They weren't correlated, is that what you're saying? But it was not correlated <laughs> like it is. Yeah, no. There was a lot of freedom, and a lot of it depended on, I mean, who was in the class, how, how sophisticated or unsophisticated were they, and, or how familiar were, were they with all the doctrines? How long had they been uh, a member of Methodism? Um, you know, there's just so much. But anyway, so Joseph Smith, he joined a class meeting. And this is when uh, they were living, uh, you know, in the Palmyra, Manchester area. As he's getting older, he he uh, participates uh, in the class meeting, 
and um, it, Do we it, know approximately what year, 1925? He was a teenager. Um, I would say, uh, but I, I, don't, I, I don't think we're given a specific date. Okay. Um, the people who reference it um, just talk about him going, you know, and, and joining the class meeting, but not giving us details about when exactly that took place. But I suspect it would have been, you know, when he's 15. 15 to 17 years old ish. So 1821 is early, maybe. Yeah, um, but that's a guess, total guess yeah, on that yeah, yeah. because they, well, they, they're not, uh, the historical record doesn't really tell us. But what would happen is you, you would join this class meeting and um, they had a text called the Doctrines and Discipline and that was essentially like, here's how we run the Methodist um, connection, what they call it. This is, what we believe, and, and then in that time period, you would go over the, the, um, that text, you would read from that text virtually every week because that was basically to give people an idea of what is the Methodist culture, what are the rules, how do we do things here. And then, in, and then also during the class meetings is when um, people would also share stories. It's almost like a mini testimony meeting, you might think about it, um, where people would share their conversions and their conversion stories or their conversion narratives. And so people would talk about their experiences being touched by the Spirit. And oftentimes, in, especially in Methodists, there's kind of a before and after type thing. So they'd say, oh, my life, I was just horrible. I was rotten. I was terrible. And then all of a sudden Christ came down and, wow, you know, I was just, you know, life turned around and then I'm just feeling all this love and joy. Would and they use the term saved or not? The term? I was saved. Uh, I, my impression is yes, but um, that starts to get into doctrinal stuff right. and I'm, I'm, kind, I'm kind of more interested that. in the dynamics of these <laughs> meetings and what these meetings meant for oral performance. Right. Um, and, so, and, and so what would happen is then people would also not just tell their stories, but then they'd also kind of encourage other people to o obey the commandments or to do better and whatnot. And that was lay exhorting. So you could have, the, the exhorting took place at all different types of levels where you might just turn to your partner and just say, you know, you know, we can be a better person. You can, you know, embrace Christ, just bring Christ into your life and you'll, you know, be a better person. But then it, it started to get a little bit more formal. And this is what's described um, as Joseph Smith going through is where he actually started to exhort at these class meetings. And so the exhorter would get up and then they would often just be kind of generic exhortations about you need, you know, you know, we're all sinners and we need to recognize that, you know, Christ and his great atonement has done such wonderful thing for us. And so you need to, you need to awake from your sinful state. You need to embrace Christ and you need to pull him into your life and, and change your life. And so the, the exhortations um, was the sort of thing that, and the exhortations Learning those things was also what comes back to this process of laying down heads. It's a similar type of thing. You have certain points that you're hitting along the way. And exhorters were, it was kind of a preparation stage to become an early career preacher. And that's one way, because a lot of the class members, and this is in the doctrines and discipline, they would tell the leaders of these class members, is once people start exhorting with one another, kind of look and see, is there anybody who's kind of talented at this? And maybe we ought to encourage them to, to go further, to become a preacher, and then to actually become, a, you know, a licensed preacher eventually. And, um, but Joseph Smith, uh, usually in those class memberships, when someone was... Um, just starting out, 
and they're just invest like the equivalent of what we call an investigator, mm. someone who's just kind of coming in and they're not sure, but they just want to participate and they want to see what it's like. But then there comes a time when um, that this is probationary period of six months, and then once you get to the end of that six months is usually when a decision was kind of made whether or not you're going to continue with it or not. And from what we know, Joseph Smith, um, even though we don't have all the records, it doesn't appear that Joseph Smith joined. So more than likely his time frame in there would have been six months or less. Um, and who knows how long that was. But that's certainly plenty of time to learn some of these sermonizing techniques. Because some of these techniques, the laying down heads, you can take someone aside and teach that to them in 30 minutes. It doesn't require some awesome orator. It doesn't require some, you know, someone who's seasoned and been going 10 years into public speaking. It doesn't, you know, it's something you can teach someone just in a few minutes and right away they can start using it. And, and not only that, you're in a culture where people have already been submerged in these techniques already from their childhood. Anytime you go into all the places where the Smith family had gone, and where they had attended churches, whether it was a Congregationalist, where they're having, you know, being exposed to the um, revivals, the joint revivals, where you had Presbyterians, Baptists, and Methodists all at the same place. Th this is something that they immediately would have been familiar with already. And so in a to, to the training, the type of training that someone would have gotten to be an exhorter in a Methodist class meeting, all it would have done is just made more explicit stuff that they already had been exposed to for their lifetime. All right. And so, so to learn these things or to have them more explicitly mentioned, uh, it would have come really easily. Now, the other thing about the Methodists is they were, they were known to be writing journals and lots of study. And one of the reasons why is because John Wesley, who you know, was well pretty much the one who started Methodism, he did help, have help from his brother and also from uh, George Whitfield. But, but Wesley, um, he was really determined because he was reaching out to all of these people who were, who were not the, you know, trained at Cambridge or Oxford or Harvard or Yale. And so uh, he put together what he called the Christian Library. And it was enormous, 42-something volumes of information. It, it would be treatises by um, uh, early preachers that Wesley agreed with their doctrine. So it could be a short little reading, or it might be an entire book that he just kind of pushed in, um, edited out to make sure it conformed to his doctrine. And, and so what people would do, some people would try to read through it. Most people couldn't. But there was this real culture of self-improvement going on in Methodism. And it, always, it also matched the culture of self-improvement going on outside Methodism. It's so like when Joseph Smith uh, joined a juvenile debate society. I mean, that's an example of someone who is definitely trying to um, improve themselves in society. And the way you did that was by education. And the way that education, and you express that education, the way you got up in society in Joseph Smith's day was also making sure you could present, you could get up in front of an audience and speak. And so kids, even at the end, the way you did tests in common schools at the, end of the, at the end of the year, and sometimes this would happen at the end of each week inside the classroom, kids would have to get up and recite. Uh, it could be a poem, it could be a speech, it could be part of dialogue, it could be uh, an essay they wrote themselves. But th that was exhibition day. At the, they'd have a great big exhibition day at the end of the school year, and then you know, local dignitaries and local worthies would come, and, and they would watch 
the way you got graded was on how well you performed, orally performed in front of an audience. You know, you didn't get the letter grades at that time. So, so this is kind of this intensely oral culture that Joseph Smith is being raised in. And so when people, these lay ministers, they would, like the Christian library, going back to the Methodists and the classmate, so they had this intense, intense culture of self-improvement that was also part of a wider movement of self-improvement. And so people were always trying to read. Now we look at Joseph Smith. I know that people are say that uh, Joseph Smith, he, he didn't care about books. Third grade education. Third grade education. Okay. Okay, I have to be kind of patient with some of this. <laughs> I understand that people want to have Joseph Smith as illiterate as possible because the more illiterate you can make him, the more amazing the Book of Mormon is. But I think what's happened in Mormon scholarship um, to its detriment is that people are so fixated on making this look like a miracle that they're shortchanging the history about Joseph Smith and his own life. They're shortchanging the history of what he went through to improve himself. In the circumstances. They're shortchanging that story of someone who was born in extremely difficult circumstances with the poverty and then also the dynamics at home, the financial destruction that had happened uh, before he was even born and then growing up in just enormously difficult. And he did a lot to improve himself. And when people said, uh, you know, sometimes some of his critics will say, oh, he didn't care about school. He was rather off fishing, you know, but if that's the kind of person he was, he would have never joined a juvenile debate society. Never. Juvenile debate societies were what you did when you had kind of done the maximum you could at a common school and that you were trying to further your education. And here we have Joseph Smith doing that. So kind of, a, you know, because they didn't have public schools. They didn't even, so would well, they did. Yeah, the common school was just coming in and being developed in the few years before that. So the common school that Joseph Smith was attending was actually a New York State common school system. So it was a public oh. school system. But there wasn't like any college. He couldn't go to college. So would this have been like post-secondary education? Well, um, or trade school or something along those lines? Kind of, but it, it was it was... What you do if you didn't get into a college, but you wanted to be able to become a local civic leader, or you wanted to be able to become someone of standing in your community, this was a way of doing it. And the debate societies, it wasn't just debating. They just didn't go there and argue with each other. Uh, you would go to a, because they were often called debate and literary. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sorry, am I moving around No, too you're much? fine. So what would happen is um, there are all sorts of things that you would do there besides just debating. So, and then we'll talk about the debate. We'll, we'll start with debate. What kind of debates took place? You know, they didn't just come up and say, um, it's time to argue. You're a jerk, you're a, you know, it wasn't like that at all. What would happen is in a debate society, there would be people who would be divided up on two sides of an issue, and then you also had judges. It could be just one person who was acting as judge, it could be three people acting as judges, depending on how many people were participating you know, whether or not you had enough people for like this full house thing. 
And then a topic would be chosen. And then one side of the room had to argue one side of the topic, and the other side of the room had to argue the opposite argument. And it didn't necessarily matter what you believed in or not. You had to argue the side you were assigned. So if there were some argument about Jesus Christ and the nature of miracles, um, is it necessary that Christ had miracles in order to inspire us to belief, or are the miracles just a nice extra um, event that helps us believe? All right. Well, so what did you do? That assignment would be given in one week, and so a week later you'd have to come back and debate about it. So what do people do? They scramble out and they start reading everywhere they can about it. And so you. If you have books at home, great. But if you're poor, like the Smiths, you don't have books at home, you, you see if you have something at a neighbor's. You go to a local bookshop. If, if you can uh, borrow someone's book, maybe a neighbor to, is, belongs to a lending library, so you go to that neighbor and say, can I use that book? I mean, peop, books circulated all around. But one thing you do is you show up to like one of the booksellers. That's an easy way to do it. Just go to the bookseller and just start flipping through and reading through and reading through as best as you can. Do we have evidence that Joseph Smith was doing that? Yes. Who was the local bookseller? It was like Pomeroy Tucker? Sounds right. Um, he described Joseph Smith coming in, and he didn't like Joseph. I mean, he's saying, oh yeah, he read, but he would read all these little stupid little, you know, Captain Kidd books and stuff. But he did say in it that when Joseph Smith came in, that he read, and this is his word, comprehensively. And what does that mean in 19th century lingo? It means he was reading every single topic in the entire bookstore. Hmm. But he's saying he kind of fixated on these little, little ratty, little cheap novels. <laughs> you know? But then he, that's also where he said, but then he would start talking with other people and giving these really unique interpretations to scripture. That's the kind of activity, you know, so you, you, you look into stuff, you read as much as you can, then you start generating your own ideas. That is exactly what the juvenile debate societies were teaching people how to do. So even though there's only one reference to Joseph Smith being in the juvenile debate society, when you understand how juvenile debate societies operated and what they were doing with people and how people went about preparing for their meetings at the debate society, what Pomeroy Tucker is telling us verifies, it, it pro provides corroboration for what the events were that were going on in Joseph Smith's life. That's not the only time he did it, when Joseph Smith was also wanting to publish the Book of Mormon, and, and he couldn't um, get, uh, is it Grandin or Grandine? Or? Grandin. Well, I say Grandin. Grandin. Um, at first, he didn't want to publish it. Yeah, E.B. Grandin. And so, so he said, okay, fine, I'm off to Rochester. And, and uh, when he was there, he approached one of the uh, companies to do to whether or not they would publish it. And then the clerk at the time who met with Joseph Smith when he first came in, he said, you know, he came in and he talked to us. And then while Joseph Smith was waiting to, you know, get response from the workers and stuff, what did he do? He dove into the book stacks and he started reading everything he could get his hands on. So, so there's corroboration for that event going on as well. Now, and people will say, but wait a minute. His mom said he didn't like to read. Okay. Well, was his mom with him in Rochester to watch him do that? Was his mom with him when he was coming in to Pomeroy Tucker's shop on his own? When you have a poor household and you don't have a lot of books, Joseph Smith isn't going to be sitting around reading books at home. So the 
And that's the thing about to really look at some of these historical references with critical thinking. You got to ask questions about it. You can't accept it on the surface because you have to say, well, that's what Lucy said. Was Lucy attached to Joseph Smith and followed him everywhere he went? And so she can say, I know he hated books because I was with him 24-7 for 10 years. He was never out of my sight. He hated books, you know. No, what was happening is a lot of times he was, he was going into town by himself. He was either taking wood probably to barter with. He, w he went there. Some people said he even had little jobs around some of the shops. And then he was also going up there to pick up the newspaper for his dad. He was there by himself alone a lot without mom looking over his shoulder. And so if he's participating in juvenile debate societies and if he's given topics and then he's going out to try to get this information, you know, there's a lot going on that people at home are not going to observe. And so, so that's why you have, to, you have to keep poking into these. You know, a lot of people will say, well, a lot of people said he was dumb who, who both adored him and who hated him. Right. So that's got to be proof that he really was illiterate. No, it's not. Because the people who hated him said he was illiterate because they wanted to make him look bad. It was an insult. They're trying to say he's an idiot. He's just gone off and created this well, Bible. And, he's and I know a jerk. Colby Townsend told me illiterate in those day did not mean what it means in our day. It meant no. like uncultured. He didn't study Shakespeare and that sort of a thing. Yeah. Not that he couldn't read and write. Right. Because that's what we think of now. Right. And, and, and there's a letter from uh, Emma that says Joseph couldn't write a well-worded well letter. We're getting to that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, wow, you know, w when people just accept it on the surface, then you get these really distorted images of what Smith actually could do versus what was being said about him. And going back, so the people who hated him would say stuff that was really insulting. The people who loved him but wanted to say what he was doing was really miraculous. Say, oh, of course he's illiterate because this miraculous Book of Mormon appeared. But the question is, these are statements that are coming from people, a lot of whom had no personal exposure to what Joseph Smith really could or could not do. They'd, they'd never sat in the classrooms he had been in. It was Brother William did. And what did William say about it? Well, he's kind of like, well, yeah, um, you know, when you, when, when you look at William Smith's quote, and this is coming from someone, that, even though it's really late, it was probably in the, you know, 1870s, 1880s when he gave this quote. But yet, even though it's late, it, he has the benefit of the fact that he was participating in the same classroom with Joseph for probably um, several school terms. Right. And what did he say about Joseph's education. He said, well, yeah, th that he was illiterate to some extent is, is true, but, you know, come on, it's not as bad as what people are saying. He, and then he starts lift, listing off topics that go beyond just simple reading, writing, arithmetic. It also includes, you know, geography. He's also talking about Joseph Smith in a way that we know that Joseph Smith was practicing penmanship. And you can verify this stuff, because when you go look at Joseph Smith's earliest writings, he, he's not like scrabbling around with the chicken scratches. He's practiced, what he has is a well-practiced form of what was called round hand at the time. It's kind of a mixture between print and cursive today. Okay. And, and when he's writing it, you can see that he was trained in it. He received instruction in it. Where? We don't have it documented what exact day or when it happened. But we have the evidence of it. 
with his writing. Okay. And so we know, and, and some of the earliest people when they're talking about Joseph Smith being ignorant, they said he absolutely couldn't even sign his name. He's so illiterate. But we have evidence that this is totally wrong. And, but what that tells us is that we know that even at this earliest stage, people were trying to take advantage of this illiterate aura in order to make the Book of Mormon look more miraculous. But they went too far with it. He can't even write his name. That got repeated a lot by mm -hmm. several people. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Colby was talking about how eventually, um, you know, it appeared in one of a newspaper that he's, he's just so dumb he can't spell his own name or anything. And then a response came in to the same newspaper where he said, hold on, I'm a relative of Joseph Smith and I, I know he can at least read and write, you know. Emma Smith and the, the letter. Mm -hmm. We have, it, it's in a letter book, and it's not actually in Joseph Smith's hand, but the, uh, Frederick G. Williams, he was copying down letters because they wanted to keep documentation of the history of the church, and Joseph Smith said, we need documentation, and we need to take a record of everything that's happening. So Frederick G. Williams was putting together, it's where the 1832 history where it originally was, and I think it got torn out. But then there are other letters that are in there. And so there's a letter which Joseph Smith is writing to, um, I believe it's Oliver Cowdery. But, um, and whether or not Joseph Smith actually wrote this by hand or dictated it, we don't know. Um, the spelling's kind of wacky, but whether that was Joseph Smith's spelling or whether it's Frederick G. Williams when he was copying it over, spelled it his own way, we don't know. But... Emma doesn't say he couldn't write a letter. She said she couldn't, that he couldn't dictate a coherent letter. And coherent. you read the letter, it is fully coherent. There's nothing wrong with it. So what is she saying? Well, you have to go back and look at the context of the interview in which that took place. You know, her son, William Smith III, he's asking his mom. Now, you know, all these people are saying that, that dad copied the Spalding manuscript and, or that, you know, he was... He wrote it, and it was on a hidden manuscript, and he was buried in the hat, yeah. buried in the hat or whatnot. And that that he was that he created this story that way, and was doing it. And then Emma comes along, and she goes, "He could barely, you know, he couldn't even do dictate a letter, much less write something like the Book of Mormon." You know, and what happens? We get removed from that in time, and then people start saying, "You know, it's really literal." He couldn't even dictate a well-worded letter. She was making an objective statement of fact. But what is she really saying? When you go back into that time period and you say, what did that mean to say someone couldn't even dictate a well-worded letter? When did people learn how to dictate letters? Or when did people learn how to write letters? That was one of the very first forms of composition exercises that children learned in common school. So she's, she's saying, look, that, that's like saying... You can't, and I said this in another essay, that's like someone saying, God, he's so dumb, he, he can't chew gum and walk at the same time. Now, is this, that's like, and then a hundred years from now saying, you know, it's a historical fact. He was unable to chew gum and walk while chewing gum. You know, that's what's happening now. And, and it's just because we're not going back into the context of some of these quotes and understanding 
What is the context he was of that? Physically quote? disabled. The whole gun chewing thing just messed up his walk. Right. And so when Joseph, when Emma Smith is saying he couldn't even dictate a well-worded letter, he couldn't even do what he couldn't even do uh, Dick and Jane. He he couldn't even read or write at the level of Dick and Jane, much less the Book of Mormon. You know. When we take it's some more of, those, of a figure of speech, it's a figure of speech. Yeah. It's facetious. It's it's meant. What she's saying, the heart of what she's saying, is she doesn't believe Joseph could have done it, and she's trying to emphasize it by giving this extreme example of he's he's not even as smart as kind of a hyperbolic statement. Yeah, yeah. And and so when you see people quoting that and using that to say, look, this is this is how bad Joseph Smith was, you know, it's just like you're missing you're missing the history. And then because you missed the history, and people will focus on debating all that and fighting all that, but you know what? What the casualty of those debates is we're missing out on Joseph Smith's life. What did Joseph Smith go through? Was he learning how to write in school? Yes, he was. We have the evidence. We have his handwriting in this handwriting. We'll look at the dictations he did of revelations. Was he capable of doing that? Yes, he was. You know? And, and I think, and then the third grade school thing, that, that's nonsense. People just need to throw that away. That's complete nonsense. Because what they're trying to do is say, what people are doing is saying, we can only document Joseph Smith being in school at certain periods in his life. And if you take all those little moments and pieces and put it all together, it's roughly only about three years. That's all the training he had. Oh, that is the most horrible kind of historical. Um, I mean, I don't remember ever hearing that he attended a Methodist exhorting school or whatever it was. Yeah. And so that that was one of the cool things in the book because I don't I don't remember hearing hearing that before. Yeah. There's a but but part of that is there are very few references to it, and so you have to learn about well, if he attended the school, what's going on at, mm -hmm. or if he attended a class meeting, what's going on at class meetings. What are the types of things that people are learning? What if someone is kind of aspiring to be a preacher? What sorts of things are they doing? Well, they're learning how to exhort. Oh, Joseph Smith was exhorting. So what, type, what does that mean? Yeah, what yeah. kinds of things are he, is he being exposed to? And then in school and education, um, there's a lot going on there that just has not been pursued because there are some people who were so determined to make Joseph Smith as illiterate and dumb as possible in order to make the... Book of Mormon looked miraculous that there's a lot of history there that has just been pushed aside. And I think it's tragic, actually. And seriously, think about it. Oops, did I just kind of switch? Think about it. This is Joseph Smith, the prophet, the great person who restored the gospel. Why are people trying to make him as dumb as possible? I mean, seriously, Joseph, as far as Joseph Smith's biography is concerned, some of his greatest enemies are f coming from some of his own followers because they're denying him his own history. They're denying him the chance to have his whole life and childhood brought to light. And he's, a, he's this tremendous example, not just of a person and what they can develop themselves into over time. But, it, but it, it's a story that was happening across early America where people did not have access to all of these things we have today. And if, if you were going to make it in life, you had to really go out and work for it. And so here's someone who's at the bottom rung of society, this poor family. And, he, and when you look at the record, you look what he's involved in. This is someone 
who was trying desperately to get out from where he was. And he went, he was participating. Juvenile debate societies, those are voluntary. No one forced him to. He wants to be part of that. Learning how to become an exhorter, no one's forcing him to become an exhorter. He wants to be part of, he needs to get somewhere. And so this is a tremendous story that people could look at and be proud of, that this is, this is someone who worked really hard to move up in the world from some really difficult trying circumstances. And that whole story just gets bashed aside because we have to say how wonderful and miraculous the Book of Mormon is uh, at the expense of the prophet himself. Hmm. You know, it's just like, come on, you know, enough's enough. Saying that he was too dumb to do that is never based on actual evidence. It's always hearsay evidence. And it's always people who are knocking him down who really, whose opinions are not objective. They're not trying to be objective. They're either trying to make him look like something he's not or, or insult him or something else. They're not objective descriptions. Yeah. You know, the, the one thought that comes to mind is, you know, Harold Bloom. Are you familiar with him? Yeah. So he's written a lot of stuff about Joseph Smith. He's Harold's a, Jew, a Jewish scholar. Mm -hmm. I think he's passed away now. Yeah. But he he always referred to Joseph as a religious genius because he could synthesize so many things. Yeah. I mean, do you do you agree with that? If if you're going to take a naturalistic explanation that Joseph used Adam Clark and Jonathan Edwards and Captain Kidd and whoever, and just synthesize all this stuff. Wouldn't he have to be a genius in order to pull out, pull this off? Well, I mean, I think the term genius. In some ways, that's really depending on how you frame the genius. Is is someone a genius at chess? Is someone a genius at you know? Well, you know, Mark Hoffman's been called a. a Evil genius. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I just avoid using that term altogether um, a lot because it ultimately you can't pin down the parameters of what that actually means when you're talking about someone like Joseph Smith, in my opinion. What I would say is this Joseph Smith had a powerful mind, he did not have photographic memory, in my opinion because I think there's too much evidence to show that that was not the case. But he did have um, a powerful memory in terms of ideas. And he also had a really powerful, the way his mind operated is that he was seeing connections in the world beyond what the average participant in life might see. So he would see things going on with his life, with things going on in scripture and thing, other things, and be able to see connections and similarities and pull those all together. And that those ideas just came into him and then just became this soup and storehouse of swirling thoughts and ideas that he, over time, as he's trying to develop his own understanding of life and the universe and the meaning of everything, that that all of these other things can came in and just swirled together. And from that, they were the building blocks in which he then started to um, express and articulate his own vision. And so, and in some ways, that's just the way the brain works. I mean, that's the cognitive process that we all have. Um, it's just someone's ability to make those connections is more powerful than others. I mean, not 
to, to think of someone who makes these rapid-fire connections but in a totally different context and say comedy and humor was Robin Williams. Yeah. And you watch him and just off the cuff, he's just doing these fantastic, hilarious things because he's pulling in information and juxtaposing things that we might not otherwise think of. But just think of think of that kind of brain suddenly in a religious situation where there's pulling in all of these, you know, something uh, from a sermon, something from family prayers and devotionals or reading in Psalms, and then something you read and then something down at the classroom. You know, these things are all there and swirling around. And so to be able to then come up with these ideas. Now, so he, I think he had a, a much more powerful mind in those skills than the average person. And that, that sort of thing started to blow people away. Mm -hmm. Is there anybody else that you can think of? You know, because th there's a challenge out there by some people that will say, well, if you think that somebody can do it, you try it. Or do you know anybody who could come up with a book like the Book of Mormon? Mm -hmm. Those, now, I actually wrote an essay about that. Okay. And it's in dialogue. Mm -hmm. And uh, th there are real problems with those lists because what happens is people will start to tailor a list with idiosyncratic criteria where they're, they're embedding their biases into that text. So what they're doing is they're saying, how is the Book of Mormon similar or different to other books? And then I'm going to create a criteria that cuts out certain comparisons and I'm going to tailor it in such a way that nobody could have done it and 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 those lists inevitably tell you more about the person who made the list than about Joseph Smith's actual abilities and anyway but that's that's it, it's it's uh, it's where I, I compare Joseph Smith to uh, another early American prophet Andrew Jackson Davis and, and in the course of that, I made a, a list outlining some things that Andrew Jackson Davis, just to show how you can bias a list. And I said, oh. here's a list of what Andrew Jackson Davis did when he did Principles of Nature. And if we follow this list, then he's the prophet. And Joseph Smith, he, he, does, he, got, he gets disqualified, you know. And so it, you can always create a list. Mm -hmm. And then and some of the lists are disastrous I know where people are trying to they're trying so hard to make a long list that they're including things where they're just padding it with stuff that is just irrelevant or meaningless and uh, those types of lists what I argue in uh, the essay you know my conclusion is that those types of lists actually do not people will claim oh there is support to have faith they buttress faith but what happens when you go through and you actually show how every single one of those points on the list is, is either uh, biased um, or poorly conceived, and then next thing you know, that buttress collapses. And what if someone's leaning on it for help? Then you're out to support somebody's testimony. You actually do the very opposite. That might be the thing that makes someone collapse and then start to wander off and think, you know, maybe this isn't it. I mean, people, have to, people are not being careful about that. You know, when you see a big list saying, oh, here are all the things that Joseph Smith did and no one else could have done, you, you can pretty much be guaranteed that you're looking at a list that's so heavily biased that you're not getting um, a, a, a fair evaluation of what's happening. So. Cool, cool. Well, are there any, uh, any misunderstandings about your work that you'd like to, to clear up that uh, some critics have? 
Um, yes, there are, uh, <clears throat> but I'm always torn about responding to critics. And, and I kind of outlined this in the book a little bit. I, I just don't want to get into those debates. The mud, mud slinging? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's, it's uh, you know, if someone throws mud at me, then I feel like I'm just picking that mud back up and throwing it back, and then I'm covered with mud. And, and then what's really gained, you know? And, you know, it's kind of like when you're, when you're a missionary and, you know, you're going around and trying to find people who are receptive to the message, and then you find someone who's gung-ho from another religion. They just want to debate and argue. And then, you know, how many times did we slip and we get into the argument and like three hours later, no one's mind has changed. People are still dead set, even more so now, in their own opinions. And there's been no progress. Right. And, you know, it turns out to have been a waste of time. And so a lot of times I've been wanting to, mm, I'm going to tackle these misrepresentations of my work. But then I think, yeah, but to do that, I have to take time away from things that for me are more important. And um, so I've really avoided it, even when it's hard, because there have been some critics who clearly did not understand what I was saying in my work. And now they're promulgating false information. They're telling people false things about the book. And, and I've, for better or for worse, I've just been trying to bite my tongue and just let it go and, you know, turn the other cheek type thing. But it's been surprising to me. I have to be honest, it's really surprising when you have some people who style themselves as defenders of the faith who are defending the faith by misrepresenting what I'm saying. And even when I've kind of told people, you know, some of the stuff you're saying is, is not accurate, to see them double down and just keep pursuing these false claims. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you one example. Maybe. Um, <laughs> when, when I was talking about the chapter headings in the book, and um, we're, we're talking about something very specific. And in the book, I'm very specific of what we're dealing with. So in, in the front of the chapter headings, we're dealing with a very specific type of formatting, a very specific type of style to open up a chapter heading. And, and so you have these little phrases. It might be a full sentence. Oftentimes it's just part of a sentence where, uh, where here, we'll just go to the Book of Mormon and up to First Nephi. Well, you should use the 1830 edition because ours, we have different chapters in the 1830 edition, right? We do have different chapters, but the opening heading is the same. Okay. Right? So, in the heading, and I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just part of it, but when you're starting out the Book of Mormon, right before you get to, you know, I, Nephi, having been born a goodly parents, well, right before that, you have, um, and not all of these are in the original Book of Mormon, but some of them are, and in the book I just referenced the ones that were in the original dictation. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you start out, and, and uh, um, so you have the first Book of Nephi, his reign and ministry, and then you have this section of phrases that kind of give an index or an outline of what's going to happen next. An account of Lehi and his wife Sariah, 
and his four sons being called beginning at the eldest, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and Nephi. The Lord warns Lehi to depart out of the land of Jerusalem because he prophesieth unto the people concerning their iniquity, and these are kind of long, um, and seek to destroy his life. He taketh three days' journey into the wilderness with his family. You know, And then you go to other ones, and, and some of those are actually a little bit longer, more descriptive than um, other places. Like they can get, uh, in the same one, when you go further down, there's short phrases like, the course of their travels. You know. When you have a series, these are all heads. And when you have a series of heads at the beginning of a chapter like that, we're talking about a really specific formatting style. That formatting style, and it's it's called a paratextual feature. It's part of a text's apparatus. And so in other words, you have the story and then all the things that you plug in on top of it, like a, the cover of a book, the title page, chapter headings, section headings, internal book headings, an index. Those things are, are all attached to a book, but they're not really part of the story. That's called the paratextual features of the text. And so in here, I go into great detail where I'm talking about the specific paratextual features that appear in the Book of Mormon and how they conform to the same print culture conventions of text in the 19th century that were available in the 19th century. They didn't originate in the 19th century. They originated long before. But those are part of a very specific history with a known, or a very specific tradition with a known history. And it's part of the Greco-Roman literary tradition. And so when you push that back and you say, when did that collection of paratextual features appear in the history of textbooks or manuscripts? Now, I couldn't. I was only allowed to do 90,000 words in the book. At one point, this book was 180,000 words. I had to cut it in half to get it to oh where it is goodness, for publication. Wow. And, and I would have had the chance to go into that history. But what that history is, is that specific Greco-Roman literary tradition, as manifest in the Book of Mormon, that tradition did not yet exist when Lehi left Jerusalem. It's something that developed over the centuries, and some portions of that didn't even develop until we get clear up into the time of printing uh, with movable type in printing. And so in this, um, I mentioned that that structure is an anachronism, and it is an anachronism. Now, but we can explain that just the way we have before. If you have a 19th century translator and he's trying to package a book according to his knowledge and understanding, then you're going to see 19th century style packaging, but it didn't originate then, but it's a specific style. And so for some reason, one critic said that I'm claiming that ancient writers didn't have any kind of summarizing phrases in their books at all. And that's not what I said, you know? And, and, and then based on that, he starts saying, look, Josephus had it in his first century text. You know what? That's impossible to know because we don't have a first century Josephus text. We don't have a second century Josephus. Third, fourth century, we don't have one. The earliest Josephus text we have is the late fifth century to the early 16th century, and it's in Latin. It's a translation. Josephus originally wrote in Greek. And <laughs> I could go on about this. Um, but it turns into playing whack-a-mole, you know? And 
And there are some people who are in the business of they say they're defending the faith when in actuality they're defending their opinions or the theories that they like. And the, 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 the belief of the church is not under attack at all. The, the, the paratextual features of the Book of Mormon, that's not a belief. You know, and you can explain it by having a 19th century translator who is framing it for a 19th century audience. So it's not a, th and then, so anyway, but, but it's the equivalent to, to kind of simplify it. Cause I know I'm talking about things that maybe aren't familiar to people. It's the same thing as if I said, ancient Egyptians did not drink diet Coke. And then to have a critic come along and say, Davis said that ancient Egyptians didn't drink any kind of flavored liquid, you know? That's what's happened. And, 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 you know, I'm just like, what do you do? You know, because I did try to kind of reach out and make some corrections. People were just interested in debates, not in, and, and that's just one of a litany. And there are some people who made some critiques that, I can kind of see how they didn't understand and I could have been clear in my work. But then there are some other crit critics who all they are doing is fault finding. And it seems like when they can't find a fault, they create one. And because I could spend all my time with, you know, just one of the critics, uh, I could write a book on showing how every single thing I say has been twisted into something else. And you know, all this aside, I mean, when we start talking about apologetics and what it means and how it's important, I think apologetics are valuable, but we have to understand what apologetics means. Apologetics outside of Mormonism is people who are trying to explain their tradition. Apologia, it's, it's explaining to help other people understand where they're coming from. Polemics is when you just get in there and start punching and fighting. And a lot of times in Mormon culture, when we say apologetics, we're actually talking about polemics. And I don't like that. I mean, one thing I took away from Mormonism is that contention is of the devil. And I wish that people would recognize that contention and polemics isn't as effective as they want it to be. And also, I would hope that um, people would be more careful in the way they represent someone else's work. Because it becomes a situation, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that people are starting to bear false witness about someone else. It's okay that you have a misunderstanding once in a while. It's okay that when you're tackling a point and it turns out, oh, I didn't fully understand what that author said. But when, when someone is just full board, I'm going to attack this person every which way impossible and who cares if I'm accurate or not, you know, that's a point when someone who sees themselves as defending the faith needs to spend more time practicing the faith because that's not what we were taught. Mm-hmm as a way to, to live and interact with other people in, as, as being a good LDS, Latter-day Saint person. And so that, and that's something that for me personally has been kind of surprising because I've seen it before, but I've always been away from it. But then suddenly to have some of that directed at me and I'm saying, look, that's not fair. No, that's not accurate. That's not, what are they doing? You know, 
So anyway, but that's just my two cents. I know that that whirlwind will go on, but, but, and I may try to write something that's neutral to try to just say, this is what I'm saying in the book and this is what I'm not, not to make it about personalities and not to make it about arguments. I may do that if I have time. Um, but it's just, every time I think I'm going to start doing that, I just suddenly, my motivation goes away because <laughs> I'm like, I, 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 don't, I don't, I'm not into this argument stuff. Right. So anyway. Well, great. Well, is there anything we've missed? I know I've kept you a long time. Um, well, I think I rambled on sometimes about topics that are too general and too uninteresting to, to warrant having been here. But it's just, I think, if I were to tie this all up, I would say for people who are interested in seeing what's happening. Now, here, here's the thing. The Book of Mormon is starting to gain, and it's been happening for the last couple decades, but I think it's going to continue to gain momentum in the academic field. And so you're going to have a lot of, um, excuse me, you're going to have a lot of scholars who are not Mormons. Who, Chris Thomas. Yeah. Or people like Chris, he's very sensitive to the, the religious issues. And so he's really, you know, someone who you can engage with, mm -hmm. with um, and, and have that religious sensitivity as well as the scholarly sensitivity. But there are other people out there in academia who don't care at all about religious sensitivities. They're just going to look at the text and they're going to say what they think and whether it offends somebody or not. And um, there, I guarantee, with what little I have seen in the Book of Mormon and my own research, I think that when some of the really good scholars, not just in literature or history, but also in rhetoric, um, when they start turning their focus on the Book of Mormon, if they do, there's going to be additional information come out about the nature of the text that could be really threatening to people. Hmm. And so I think the best thing to do now would be to try to, there are ways to reconcile this with faith. And I would say that the least workable one is to put on blinders and start fighting. It's understandable. It's a human reaction. But if we can just start to listen and just look at the evidence, there's always ways to reconcile faith. And ultimately, in the end, I think it pays off because if your faith is based on accurate information, then your faith inevitably will be stronger for it. But if people are believing in things that are demonstrably wrong, but they just refuse to change, then they really are building their faith their house on sand and it's eventually just going to wash away so things will come things will be kind of tough to swallow but just be patient and and there are ways to develop some things evolve and change and sometimes we have to let go of nostalgic reminiscences from the past the way things used to be because maybe the way things used to be weren't the the ways that Heavenly Father would want to have it be Mm -hmm. And so that's just, that's me on the outside looking in, just offering a suggestion. People can take it or leave it, but, but there's going to be more research coming out. I mean, you know, cause I have my ear to the ground. I'm in the scholarship area and there's always stuff coming out that is going to be new and unexpected. And to just know that that's why that's just part of the process of living, learning, growing, and 
getting more information. All right. Any Mormon studies uh, topics you're working on? Yes, sort of, but kind of indirectly. I mean, ultimately, I think I would like to do something more in-depth on um, Joseph Smith's education and the types of things he would have been exposed to and experienced growing up. Um, because I think, you know, and uh, because, because of the nature of way way people have shuffled that off and because it's so important to do this miracle and so important to keep Joseph illiterate, there's, maybe I shouldn't say this because there are gonna be scholars out there who might watch this, but there is so much research that's just low-hanging fruit there for the picking. Well, because I think Jonathan Edwards, Adam Clark, um, there's probably other theologians of the day. I mean, because I know that wasn't really the focus of your book, but I know there's people, Jonathan Neville's mentioned Jonathan Edwards, mm -hmm. that, that are like, hey, these, these were influential in the Book of Mormon. So, Yeah, there's, there's a lot to be explored. And not just about the Book of Mormon, but just about Joseph Smith's early life. Mm -hmm. There have been certain topics that are great to study, and then other topics like his exposure to educational avenues that have been kind of pushed aside because it's a little uncomfortable because it challenges this other narrative of him being the illiterate farm boy. And so because but you're that, not working on that, right? Not yet, but I've done a lot of work on it. Mm. Um, but that's kind of down the road. Okay. Yeah. There's some other things I'm working on. There's, some, there's something I'm working on now that involves um, Mormon topics in the Book of Mormon, but it's actually aimed at an audience outside of Mormonism. It has to do with source criticism methodology and stuff like that. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. William Davis, I really appreciate your hospitality and uh, for sitting down with me and, and uh, talking about the Book of Mormon. So, and your wonderful book. Somebody is going to be a uh, winner of uh, an autographed copy here. I'm going to have Bill autograph it here very shortly. And so, it's a great book. I encourage you guys to, to check it out. So, all right. Thanks, thanks for, again for being on Gospel Tangents. I appreciate it. This was fun. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. William Davis and that uh, one of you are going to be a winner of this. So make sure you sign up to gospeltangents.com slash contest and you could win this autographed copy right here. Entries are due on Friday. So uh, I will announce the winner next week in our next episode. In our next conversation, I'm excited to introduce Jennifer Roach. She's a former Anglican pastor and has some unfortunate personal experience with sexual abuse. We'll talk a little bit about her experience as well as the AP news article on the LDS Church Helpline. So I was involved in a lawsuit in California, and one of the reporters who was most writing about it, um, he's a member of the church, uh, the LDS Church, and he and I had worked together a lot. There, there was a, a bunch of stories that came out, and so he and I were getting to know each other, um, and I kind of had this sense of like, oh, I know he's a church-going guy. I, I didn't know anything really much more than that. And at one point, the, the lawsuit involves a church where I grew up that I sued for my sexual abuse, right? So I took them to court and won. Um, that church decided to give a response to the initial stories about this lawsuit in a sermon. And so the pastor chose for his text to use Moses, and his sermon really was awful. It was basically, well, Moses messed up, and 
God seems to forgive him. So when leaders mess up, we should just forgive them. That's kind of, and I was angry about it. I was all worked up. The, the plan was um, my reporter friend and I were going to talk later in the week after both of us had listened to this. If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.